I changed this around just a little bit because of uplift. So we're going around talking about what's your takeaway. One of those young people, Caleb, said, I really loved the motto. It's a small group. They did small groups, and they took them out, and they just had discussions. I didn't get to be part of those, but one of them had talking about your motto that guides you for life. And he was so impressed by that 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 was his takeaway, and I got to thinking about the value of that. Here's what a motto is. Here's the definition. A short... It has to be short or you won't remember it. A short expression of a guiding principle. It's short. It's memorable. You can carry it with you in your head. But it guides you. And the principle, here's what a principle is. Comprehensive, fundamental code of conduct. This principle is, is this conduct that I agree to submit myself to. I'm going to live this way. And it's comprehensive. It covers everything. So get it? It's a short expression of a comprehensive way I'm going to live. It's got to be short. It's got to be memorable, but it's got to be valid. It's got to be something that actually reflects who I am. And so this motto he was excited about, I thought, what about a motto when it comes to this passage we're talking about? First Thessalonians chapter 4, very well read just a moment ago. Here's what's interesting. You read this, and I want you to see the first couple of verses again. Finally, brothers, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. We've already told you this. This is one of the most important early days teaching of your faith. I've already told you this, but I want you to keep doing it more and more. Verse 2, you know what instructions we gave you. We, this is not something that you lacked. I've already told you this. I gave you this instruction from Jesus. It's not Paul. It's Jesus giving this instruction. Paul's already told them, but they've forgotten. I want you to look down at verse now, verse 6. That, so, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Paul says, I've told you this, but I need to tell you again. You ever notice the church never gets done telling, teaching, reminding? Paul says, I've told you this before. I even gave you warnings about this because it is so powerful. And yet you're already forgetting this, or as the last verse said, some of you are disregarding this. Why is it so hard to remember the Christian sexual ethic? Why is that so hard to get in our heads? I think you know the answer to this. Because the Christian motto isn't the only motto we know, right? It's not the only motto. As soon as you hear it, you hear it on Sundays. You might read it if you read Scripture. You know what it is, but the moment you leave the church building, the other mottos start making lots of noise and chatter in your head. You turn on the radio, and you hear the worldly motto raging through the, the, the radio and into your head, and you see it in the movies. You see it in commercials. You hear it in the media. You, most of your friends in the world go by a different motto. And so we, we are inundated by this, and it confuses us, and we start meshing them, and we start messing with it. And, and we got to be reminded of this. There are mottos. Here's number one, the culture motto. Our culture has one. It's in everything that we experience 
It's out there. It's the soundtrack of the American life. And even though you come out of the world, you are immersed into a different ethic, you still are very aware of and spend a whole lot more time with that other motto than this new one. And all of a sudden, you've got competing mottos in your head. Now, in the first century, already by the first century, you have a certain philosophy going. Here is Demosthenes. In the ancient world, this was, their, this was their motto. It's a little long, but it really does reflect what they believe. And it's, it's, it's this. This is what living with a woman as one's wife means. Okay? This is what you need to be living your life by. To have children by her, to introduce sons to the members of the clan so that you have legitimate sons. And then your daughters, they can be introduced as husbands to, to, to them as well. Right? Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure. So we got our wives to do legitimate house and legitimate family, but we got mistresses to take care of our desires. And I don't get this next one. It's a little weird to me. Concubines for the daily care of our persons. It's like so you can bathe together. It's what it sounds like to me. It's weird. But wives to bear us legitimate children and to be faithful guardians of our household. In the first century, men could dally around. It couldn't be with another person's wife. But if there was another person in your life, that's okay. You can have mistresses and concubines, but just keep your wife at home so she keeps the home fires burning, right? That's the first century ethic. That's not really our ethic, but I I got to thinking as I listened to our songs and watched the movies and see what people are saying in the world, we have a motto in our culture. It's largely around two words. As long as it's consensual... As long as you agree and I agree that this sexual encounter is, uh, meets our needs, it's okay. It doesn't matter if you're married to someone. It doesn't matter if either one of us are married to each other, as long as it's consensual. Now, if it's not consensual, it becomes the Me Too movement. No, we can't do that, right? So we got some little boundaries here. But it, it's consensual, and it needs to be safe, right? Got to use protection or make sure it doesn't make uh, any kind of consequences for either one of us that we couldn't have uh, prevented. So as long as it's safe and as long as it's consensual, it's okay. That's kind of our culture. Would you agree with that? Do you think our culture is largely that? Am I wrong? Am I right? Yay, nay, yeah. I think so. And then it becomes a private and personal matter after that. So here's the motto for our culture. You ready? If consent you get and safe you stay, it doesn't really matter with whom you lay. How about that? That's our cultural motto. You didn't think you'd ever hear a preacher have the word lay there, did you? That's, that's, I worked on this, and it was the only rhyme I could come up with. But it really is true of the world. This is it. That's our culture's motto. And if you're raised in this all your life, it's the breath you breathe. It's the movies you watch. Even if you're a Christian, you're not really shocked by any of it. And you don't really have any expectation of anybody being any different. But that's not the only motto there is. There's also our own fallen nature motto. Now, the way Paul describes it in this passage, I want you to see my two words may not be the same as yours. Mine's the ESV. Notice what he says in verse 5. Not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who don't know God. The passion of their lust. It's the desire of the body, right? It's whatever desire I have. And we all have weird ones. We all, there, there are some strange ones. People now have names for these relationships that are just out of this world, but some kind of strange desire comes in. You have a fleeting thought of a strange sexual desire. Well, you need to explore that. 
Because that's how God made you. That's who you are. That's the authentic you. And so if you have this desire, well then, meet it. All all the justification you need is the fact that you want. Now, this is not unusual in the New Testament even. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 7, it's better to marry than to burn. He doesn't mean burn in hell. He says it's better to have a wife and get married rather than to burn with passion. Paul Paul knows this. We have an incredibly intense sexual desire within us as human beings. And it gets fed by all sorts of things in our culture. Our culture is built on feeding this and exploiting this. We might call it chemistry, right? We, I have a type, you have a type. There's certain things that turn you on and certain things that turn this person on. And we, we don't really control that, we think. We don't really have much say in that. But we, we then find all sorts of stimulants around in our culture that feed it. Now, the King James Version has a word for this. I don't hear it anymore. And I remember asking people what it was, and no one could ever really answer what it was. But let me show you the screen for a second. So you have these bodily desires. You you may have something to do with that. You may not. It may be just by nature be there. It's very possible. It's a desire you have. And the world skips the middle and goes straight and says, if you have the desire, you're justified in any action that meets it. Desire justifies whatever you do to meet it. That's what the world says. That's what this ethic says. Now what we believe in the middle is this ability to distract the desire of the body before it becomes sin. You can control your desires. Don't buy the lie of the world that you can't. You have control. You have the ability to do things to channel whatever your desire is and make sure it comes out in a proper way. You have veto power over what you desire. The world says you can't. It's a lie. It's Satan's great lie because you do. Now, here's what King James used to say. There's these list of sins. Does anybody remember reading? I'm going to try to say this without spitting because I've got a cough drop. Lasciviousness. How many have never heard of lasciviousness? Yeah, that's what I thought. That used to be a word in all those lists, and we'd all stop and go, what is that? And the teacher would say, well, you just shouldn't do it, and you go on, right? What is lascivious? Here's what lasciviousness is. Anything that appeals to that desire, whip it into lust. It's, and you know, you know this. You know what pornography is? You have this desire of the flesh inside you, and then you go online and you see people participating in that very act, and it, it causes that desire to be and burn up and fury. It reaches this level like, i got to do something with this. That's called lasciviousness. But there's other things that do that. Crude joking can do that. Dancing can do that. I'm not saying all dancing's wrong. You go to an old-fashioned square dance, it's probably not much of a problem. But there are some, with the way people dress and the gyrations of the body, you know what it's there for? To take this desire of the body and to whip it into a burning passion. That's what he's talking about here. You've got a desire that's whipped into lust. You can do things to cause that to happen. And it's under your control, and you are responsible for it. Lasciviousness is anything that you do that you know appeals to that base nature and whips it higher into a lust. Desire goes to lust because you do something in between that feeds it rather than controls it. You are responsible. I know places, like for instance at church camp, 
Have you ever wondered why we split up the guys and girls for swimming? I mean, nobody, I mean, we talk about dress code and we debate that till out the, it comes out our minds. But, but, but for whatever reason, nobody ever asks. You know why? Because just that image, just that image in a guy's head especially, but girls too, I'm not saying it's one or the other, can cause that to be inflamed, this desire to go to lust. And I believe it's true. I believe even for adults it's true. We know better, so you know what we do? We just split them up. It saves us. We force you to practice self-control. We don't give you a choice. That's why we split them up. Well, they're only 8 or 10 years old. Let's start now then, baby. Let's start right now. That's why we do that. There's all sorts of things, and you know what, they, and some things that just seem so innocent to me can be something that for someone else, it stirs up that desire and it causes it to become lust. They need to know themselves, know what that is, and control themselves, but the world says don't worry about that. If you've got the desire, it justifies whatever you do, but you know how scripture de de develops that? Job has this line where he says, I've made a covenant with my eyes never to look lustfully at a girl. You know what he says? There's an attractive person. If I dwell on this very long, it's going gonna, it's gonna to develop into lust. So I am going to make a covenant, and I'm going to change where my eyes are looking. It's as simple as that. Paul, uh, Jesus says it this way, I'll pluck out my eyes or cut off my right arm. There are things we can do to control ourselves. But the world disagrees. The world says if you have this impulse, if you have this desire, it justifies whatever you do in meeting it. Run all the stop signs, run all the boundaries that the world has put into place and Scripture puts into place. Just meet your self-gratification because it's the authentic, true you. And that is a lie. Now, here's the motto of your sinful nature. Whatever desire I have and craving I feel, I have the right to pursue it with zeal. If I feel it, I need to explore it. I need to experiment with it. I owe it to myself to meet this desire. Because after all, God put it in there, so it must mean I can justify any way of meeting it. That is a lie, but it's a prevalent one. And it's one that when we are in a state of lust, we want to believe. And many people will get themselves into a state where they cannot control themselves and must act out in some way, and they think it's okay because the desire was there in the first place. There's another motto, though. It's even worse. He mentions it here in verse 8. There were some believers at Thessalonica who it says in verse one, chapter 1, verse 9, they came from paganism. And they turned from paganism to turn to the one true and living God to serve and obey him. That's what it says, verse one, chapter 1, verse 9. Do you know what their former lives were like? They lived in pagan, they went to pagan temples and worship, and you know what their God said about sex? Nothing. They, they had a complete segregation. There's what you do at the temple to worship God, and then you leave there, and that God doesn't care one iota what you do with your behavior or your ethics. And they thought, turning to a living God, why does that have any bearing on the things that used to be just fine with the God I served? But here's the thing. When you become a Christian, God's pretty, God's pretty comprehensive. He wants a say in every part of your life. 
your decision making, your behavior, your dress, your language. He wants a say in all of it. He doesn't say, just come worship me on Sundays and you can leave and do whatever you want because I really don't care. You come back the next time. That's not our God. That's not our God. But many people convince themselves it is. Here's, here's another screen for how this really goes. God's call. How many of you obeyed God's call and let him save you? Raise your hand. You obeyed God's call. We like that one. We like the call of God through the gospel to save us. We love the salvation, but that call continues in your life. It doesn't end with him saving you. He continues to call. And you know what he calls you to? To be like him. It's called sanctification. He calls you to salvation, and then he calls you to continue through sanctification. He wants to make you like himself, like Jesus. And so that call continues. But you know what a lot of people do? I want the salvation, but I don't want the middle. I don't want that. I've, I've decided I'm going to opt out of that. I love the salvation, but I'm, I'm just tired of the sanctification. Let me just let him save my soul. I'll wait till heaven. Until then, I'm going to do whatever I want. And apparently, there's some in Thessalonica were because they were disregarding the words of God. They were disregarding everything Jesus said about this through Paul. And so here's, here's what they did. They say, I love the salvation gift, but I say no thanks to the sanctification gift. And here's what the slogan sounds like. As long as I let God save my soul, what I do with my body is in my control. But here's one thing that's interesting. We don't believe in a sinner's prayer. Let's just, our minds are changed. I've changed my mind, I want to serve God. And so I'm going to pray this prayer because I've changed my mind. Well, that's great. But do you know that your mind isn't the only participant in this? You're not just giving God your mind. You're giving him your whole body. And so God says when, when you become a child of God, I want you to immerse the whole thing. Put it all under submission to me. I want you to put it all in there. Your body is included in that, certain, in that baptism. I watched closely. I'm one of these, you know, I'm concerned it will go through heaven without elbows and stuff. Right, So I watched this week as we immersed several. We got them all under. We put them under. We want you all under there because your entire life is good. And, and so, but, but, but this is often, this is common back then in the first century. And y'all, this is Christian mainstream today. As long as you've given your soul to God, what you do with your body, Christians are believing this. They existed in the first century, these mottos, and they exist today, but God has a motto of his own. It's part of your Christian faith, and we learn it very early. Before Paul was run out of town, and he was run out of town early in Thessalonica, but he said, I got this down there because I know in your culture, and I know from your experience, this is fundamental stuff that you need to hear early on in your Christian life. So let me tell you what he says. It's very important. And you could tell it by the stress. There's three ways he tells them. Number one, this is instruction from God. It's been clearly given to us in Scripture. Now, Paul says, this is not from me. This is from the Lord Jesus. This is instruction straight from the mouth of the Lord. 
This is not something I decided. I can tell you this, in many years of preaching, I've never been in an elders meeting where they sit across the table from each other and try to decide what, try to decide what we believe about sex among Christians. We have never had that discussion because it's not our discussion to have. God's made it clear in Scripture what his ethic is. Not only that, but in verse 7, he said, I give you a warning. You ever do this to each other? God's going to be an Avenger. And if you think the movie Avengers is amazing, wait till you see God when he's the Avenger. You've got things to fear then. So you see, when we have an instruction time with our young people, we tell them, well, you need to be this way, this way. And if we're really... If we really have a hunch that there's some among them that may test it a little bit, I know you can't imagine that, but we got Trey Fitz. And we know his daddy, too. It's in the blood. But when you know that, you know what you do? You add a little bit of a warning to it. And in this passage, he says... This is God's will. This is God's will. This is what pleases God. This is what he asks. Over and over again, this is from God. And by the way, it comes to you with a warning. If you ignore this, God will not ignore it or you. And then, to cap it all off, the last verse, which is the best, he says, and God knew how hard it would be, so he gave you supernatural help. He gave you his Holy Spirit. What is the, listen to me, what is the Holy Spirit for? What is the Holy Spirit in you for? To make you holy. He knew you couldn't do it by yourself. He knew the pressures are here, so he put a little bit of himself inside of you to give you a chance, to give you the power to do it. And if you run by these stop signs, if you run by this instruction from God, you are absolutely nullifying what the Holy Spirit's trying to do in you. He's working. Listen to him. This tells me we have a Jesus-given, spirit-powered will from God on this, and we need to listen to it. And, and, and so here it is. This, is. this is the best I can do. Here's our, here's our motto. When it comes to sex, the when, the how, the who, we say to God, how can I please you? Now, that sounds weird, doesn't it? I'm going to ask God if this is pleasing to him. The only reason that sounds weird is the other mottos have been rolling around your head too long. And we haven't stressed this enough. Because this is God's motto. You want to know who to have sex with? How and where and, and when? Well, then you say to God, will this be pleasing to you? I know that sounds weird. I know that sounds weird. You can think about a husband and a wife totally before God, and they come together. Is that pleasing God? And the answer to that is, yes, sir, and every man knows it. Every man knows it. In fact, it's the first command God ever gave. Does anybody know what the first commandment from God ever was? What? Be fruitful and multiply. Now, okay, church, how can a one man and one woman just created by God be fruitful and fill the earth? Anybody want to speak up? Do I really have to go there? Melissa says, no, you don't have to go there. 
Do you know what it means when he says be fruitful? He says go out there and have a lot of sex, right? And that's what I want. And that's how I want to fill the earth. And that's how we please God. And so I can look at Melissa sometime and say, let's go please God, honey. And that would be valid. It wouldn't work. I promise you it wouldn't work. At least the three times I've tried it, it just didn't work. But it is pleasing to God to see when his people honor his ethic and stick with it in a world that has already long forgotten it. Because even in our sex, we express the nature of our God. And we're different than the crazed, passionate, crazy, lustful world we live in. So God's motto, when it comes to sex, the when, the how, the who, we say to God, how can I please you? And there's two, he says two specific things about this. Number one is you got to say no to sexual immorality. It's out of bounds. you got to say no. There's times you say no to yourself. The two words that are most associated with sexual immorality are flee and avoid. Flee and avoid. Run from it and avoid it. Don't do it. Sexual immorality. But what is this? What is sexual immorality? The easiest way to answer that is to say what sexual morality is. And Jesus defines that. He was asked a question about divorce, but he decides to pan out a lot further and say, let me just tell you the entire sex ethic of God. And here it is. He answered, have you not read when he created them from the beginning? This is the way God did on page one of humanity. Made them male and female. Yes, one or the other. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, the two will become one flesh. You've got one man, one woman, and you've got the covenant relationship that is the environment of that relationship, right? They leave something behind and they form something new, and it's in that context. They're no longer two, they're one flesh, there's a oneness. What therefore God has joined together, man is not to separate. This is sexual morality. One man, one woman, in the covenant relationship of marriage, and in that context, God says, I'm pleased. Be fruitful and multiply. If it's something other than this, it's immorality. Now, to get specific, because we have to, here's a list. I just kind of, next screen. Adultery. You have a covenant with one person, you step out of it and engage in sex with another. That is not morality, that is immorality. Consulting prostitutes, I just, because of 1 Corinthians 6, I need to put that on there. That just seems pretty self-explanatory, but I don't want to presume anything. Number three, sex before marriage. Because you don't have the covenant. And there'll be people telling me, but you know, if you're going to get married, go. No, 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 no. It's not for people who are going to get married. It's for people who've already gotten married. They've made the covenant. They've made a promise. I'm not just love, in love with you passionately right now. I'm in love with you passionately, and I will be for the rest of my life. That's the context, right? This includes living together. And our world says cohabitation is the way to try things in the church. Cohabitation has become acceptable. I don't know, financially it's cheaper this way and it's a good trial run. That's all true, seemingly. But it's immorality. It's not right. It's outside of God's bounds. So, no, that's not sexual morality. It's immorality. Homosexuality, it's not one man, one woman. 
any more than two. I would like to think this is too weird, but no, it's becoming prominent. Polygamy, polyamory, where, where the guy has a wife and a girlfriend. Bestiality, an upset, pornography, even virtually. Well, there's no victim to that crime. Yes, there is, and it's largely you. Sex with self. Not one man, one woman for life. This is immorality. This is what he says. When, when you do the thing, when, will this be pleasing to you? He says, if it's one of these things right here, don't struggle in angst inside yourself. The answer is clear. The answer is no. Don't pray about this. Don't struggle with it. Don't debate it in your mind. Don't let somebody else change your mind and come up with a flashy argument for why you should. The, the answer to all of these is no. And then there's a yes. Control your own body. I want you to look at that, and I wish you'd underline it, right? Each one of you, verse 4, know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. You can control your bodily desires. And the two filters, next screen. Holiness, honor. Filter number one, how can I be like God in this? Well, one man, one woman, covenant relationship. If it's intentional and it's ordered and it's exactly like God would have it and his spirit is in you, then have at it, right? That's the filter. Second one, honor. What is honor? It has to do with what it does to the other person. Most of the time when people are hot after another person, it's not in order to make them more holy. It's to meet your own selfish gratification. We objectify people. We come to objectify those people who have those features that cause us to generate that desire into lust. And we objectify them and make them like pieces of meat, right? Here's the honor part. Not only am I going to conduct myself that keeps me holy before God, but my behavior and my interaction with every person I meet is to help keep them holy too. He seems to suggest here in verse 6 that some of these people in verse 7 were actually pursuing relationships sexually with other people in the church thinking that it's okay if it's within the body of Christ. It's not okay that way because you're making them further away from holiness. Let me give you an example of this. As we wrap this up, it's this. I think people think that sex is their personal and private thing, but can I tell you something? Sex is anything but personal and private. The moment you engage in sex with somebody else, you alter everything about their life. You change your relationship with them with their spouse with their family with their church do you know anybody know people in the church who've committed adultery on their spouse and it completely disturbs the community it doesn't stay in the confines of privacy and personal you got everybody trying to figure out what does this mean? And all of a sudden their holiness is, is, is put into question and you aren't acting honorably toward that other person. If you engaging in sex with another person doesn't make them more holy like God just as it does you, then you don't need to engage in it. It's loving God and loving our neighbor. And that's what God has to say. That's his motto on this stuff and we need to keep it in our heads. We need to remember this. So here's from culture. 
If consent you get and safe you stay, it doesn't really matter with whom you lay, right? That's the culture. From within ourselves in our worst moments, whatever desire I have and craving I feel, I have the right to pursue it with zeal. And we make ourselves believe it, even though we know it's not spiritually true. And some within the church and the spiritual realm will say, as long as I let God save my soul, what I do with my body is under my control. And all of those just seem so enticing, but they're not true. Instead, when it comes to sex, the when, the how, the who, we say to God, how can I please you? This holiness God asks for in every area of our life, not just sex. It covers a lot more than sex, but it doesn't cover any less than that. This part of our lives that is so part of us has to be brought under the dominion of our Creator. We saw a lot of our young people make a covenant with Christ this week. It's a truly an honor to watch it. But I want you to know, for those of you who have a little skeptics in your head, because I have a little skeptic in my head, we had a discussion there about this because you know in the emotional frenzy and the closeness of a week like this, it's awful easy to go with the flow and almost like peer pressure each other into this and the attention you get. We had a discussion about this. Don't be very careful because while you're in a high point, it's easy to make a covenant when, at, when you go home and everything's back the way it was to wish you hadn't. This covenant you make covers every moment of life from here on out. You are bowing to King Jesus and you're saying every facet of my life is being brought under this covenant. And that's true. And maybe there's somebody here right now who needs to make this covenant. You're ready to give your life to God, but if you're going to do that, you need to obey him. And he says to you, I want you to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You want the salvation, you've got to obey the call of God. And after that, the call becomes a call to sanctification, and you need to agree with that as well on the other side. And if you're ready for that, we are very interested in watching that, being part of that. But if you've done that, and for some other reason, you've come out from under the sovereignty of God, and you've decided, well, there's certain things that God doesn't care about, and, and, and this morning you're reminded, no, 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 I can't do that. I've got to repent of those things and come back under his dominion as king. And this morning, if you need to do that, we'd be interested in watching that too. Whatever response you need to make, make it now as we stand, as we sing together.